Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. We're in Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to read the first few paragraphs from that chapter for us. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the father, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we hear very heavy words that are delivered to those who are gathering in the temple, and they fall heavy on us, and we long to discern them, to apply them, to live them, to be changed by them. Your word carries that kind of weight. It can do that kind of thing in our church body, and so we plead for you to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to approach this passage and understand what Jeremiah's original hearers were first hearing, and then I want us to have access to how that applies for us today. How did the first hearers hear this? How do we hear and apply these things today in our lives? We spent a lot of time with Jeremiah giving his first sermon. He stood on a street corner in Jerusalem, and from chapter 2 to chapter 6 was one sermon that he delivered in Jerusalem. But now, sometime later, God comes to him and he says, I want you to change the locations. Verse 2, God says, stand at the gate of the Lord's house. In other words, leave the street corner and I want you to go to the temple. That movement alone ought to give us pause. It's one thing to preach on the streets, right? It's one thing to stand on a street corner in Jerusalem and just preach to anybody who's passing by the irreligious riffraff that is in Jerusalem, what with their baggy pants and their loud music and their progressive urban lifestyles. They probably deserved a stiff sermon, and Jeremiah gave it to him. He stood on the street corner and he preached to those who passed by him. But preaching at the temple is an altogether different kind of thing. Jeremiah is literally preaching to the choir. Jeremiah is preaching to a group of people who are going to walk into the temple. They're going to sing God's songs and they're going to give God's sacrifices. Which is to say, 
It is possible for those who stand closest to the things of God to be the very people who need to hear most from God. Now, when he goes there, this may have been a feast day. This could have been a popular day where there were a lot of people there. God says, stand at the gates, which is probably the gates to the courtyard of the temple. There would have been a large courtyard and then the temple itself. And so you have a lot of people, a huge crowd coming and going. And Jeremiah finds one of these gates and he stands at it and he begins to shout to the people who are going into the temple. That's an extremely dramatic scene. Try to picture this from an Israelite's perspective. Now I know this building where we meet taps is not quite the Old Testament temple, right? There are some amenities missing here that were probably there in Jeremiah's day. But I think you can imagine that if you had gone through your routine and come here to worship on Sunday morning and you found that somebody was standing at the glass doors shouting at you on your way in to worship, that would have been a memorable experience, right? You, you would have remembered that throughout the day and the week. In fact, we had a scene almost like that in this church a while ago when a woman stood up in the middle of my sermon and she shouted something to me. And I still remember where she was and what she was wearing and what I shouted back to her and how long it took John and some other people to kind of usher her out to the welcome area. I mean, that was a very memorable experience for those of us who were there. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's standing and he's shouting. Now, Jeremiah gets away with this in chapter 7, but when he pulls this stunt again in chapter 26, a mob grabs him and they almost kill him for what he's preaching to the people. This is what he says. He commands them in verse three, amend your ways and your deeds. And then he warns them in verse four, do not trust in deceptive words. He goes on from there, but the two paragraphs that follow, they simply unpack this warning and command. He speaks about those things further. Here's the crux of Jeremiah's message to a crowd of temple goers. It's not an issue about how often they are coming to the temple. It's not an issue about how well they dress when they come. It's not an issue of how loud they sing these worship songs. It's not an issue about how energetic the worship service is. In fact, it's not really an issue about the Sabbath day at all per se. The issue primarily with these temple goers is what they are doing with their lives the other six days a week. The issue is that the issues that are near and dear to God are being blatantly disregarded. Issues, verse 6 and 7, of justice and mercy and care for the oppressed, the alien, the orphan, the widow. When a person oppresses, abuses, overlooks, ignores the broken and the destitute, and then they wash up and rush to the temple, they turn the temple into something awful. They turn the temple into something that it was never intended to be. Verse 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? 
Do you think this place is some kind of hideout? Do you think this is a safe house for those who go and oppress to then come and find a safe place to be? Like you can go and do whatever you want in the public square six days a week. Like you can withhold wages or cheat customers. You can save a dollar here at the expense of a worker there. You can ignore grinding poverty. You can pretend that homelessness is not your problem, that fatherlessness was not your decision, that immigration was not your public policy preference, and then you can show up on Sabbath day, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord. We're delivered. Praise God. It's wonderful to be here. God says to these people through the prophet Jeremiah, that's not going to happen. When you do that, you treat this place like a den of robbers. You treat it like a place of oppressors who come and gather and try to find safety. And that's not what my house is. This is all happening in the 600s BC. This is all happening around God's Old Testament temple. How do we begin to have access like that? How do we understand temple life in the 600 BCs for what it has to do with us as believers in our church life in the 21st century? Jesus actually makes that connection very easy for us. He actually takes temple, the cookies of temple typology, and he puts them on the bottom shelf for us. He gives us access to why we're related to the Old Testament temple. In John chapter 1, John writes in the New Testament that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. That is, Jesus templed among us. He's a temple. In John chapter 2, the crowds, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a miracle. Prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a sign. If you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. The people are incredulous. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this thing. How could you possibly rebuild it in three days? And John answers in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's a new temple that's here in Jesus. The temple, it was a temporary symbol of mediation between God and man, that we have a mediator, that we have sacrifices on our behalf. But when Jesus appears, he becomes that new mediator. He becomes the temple in our midst. There was no temple in the Garden of Eden, and there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem because there's no need of a temple. Jesus is our temple. He's the mediator between God and us. Now, I want you to take that nugget of biblical theology, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Flip ahead with me to Luke 19. I want to read for us this passage that comes immediately after the passage that John read and preached on just a few weeks ago in Palm Sunday. Luke 19, beginning in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den 
of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus is a new Jeremiah. Jesus appears and speaks Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah's location, a new prophet calling for a new kind of temple life. When Jesus clears the temple, the temple itself, the physical building, the temple, it was about to be destroyed. And Jesus' body, he was about to replace the temple forever to become our temple and our mediator. And yet he still cleanses the temple and gives temple instructions because it is still important to a believer. What was true of the God of the temple in the Old Testament that we just read in Jeremiah chapter 7 is true of the God of Jesus' resurrected temple body today. The warning and the command of Jeremiah chapter 7 is as relevant today to us as it was to those who first heard it in Jeremiah's day. What do we do with these stern words? They're very stern words. They're directed to those who are worshiping in the temple. How do we avoid this self-deceptive trap of these temple goers and live lives of justice and mercy and humility in our city? How do we begin to do that? How do we begin to practice that? Julie and I, we recently went and saw the Wendell Berry documentary at the Nick. Maybe some of you have seen that. Look and see. It's a wonderful documentary about really the thought of Wendell Berry. And after seeing the documentary, I ran home and began reading some of his essays, particularly from the 70s. And the whole thing has got me equal parts fired up and ready to go. And then utterly immobilized and unsure of what to do next. Have you ever had that sense where you have a burning in your heart, but you just don't know how to begin to apply these things? There are massive questions for us as Christians to answer in this brave new world of agribusiness, sweatshops, displaced people, abortion, AIDS, pollution, and hunger. A world in which what we buy, where we buy it, how we live, it sets off this domino effect around the world for good or for ill. You begin to think about those things and it can make our heads spin, right? Like, where do I even begin to do this? But by asking these hard questions, by amending our ways and our deeds, we as believers begin to show the world what the very heart of God is. What are the things that he cares about that he longs for in this world? Asking those questions, those meta questions about this world, that's, that's flying at 10,000 feet, right? And we need to think about those. We need to answer those. But I just want to close with maybe two simple words of application that are really boots on the ground. Like, I want to answer those big questions, but I also want to do something today and this week and in the weeks to come. How do I become this person of justice and mercy who hears from God? These two points, they're going to be so simple, you're going to roll your eyes when you hear them. 
But number one is this. Let mercy and justice begin with a personal relationship. If you're like me, the moment you start talking about abstract categories, poverty, fatherlessness, homelessness, I I immediately become lost. I mean, I want to engage, but I don't know what to do. But when you put a person in front of me, all of a sudden that dynamic begins to change. Are you rubbing shoulders in your life with people described in verse 6? If not, if you don't have those opportunities and you're willing to have those opportunities, we have ministries in this church whose specific design is to get us to begin rubbing shoulders. I think there is a place for soup kitchens. I think there is a place for Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes, but we don't do any of that. We don't do any mass ministry where we have waves of people passing in front of us because we are desperate to see personal connections made. Here's our strategy. We want to get a believer in a room with a homeless man. We want to get a believer in a room with a woman who is trapped in the sex industry. We want to get a believer in a room with a child who's growing up in poverty, a believer in a room with a refugee who's resettling in America. We want to put them together in a room and close the door and let the awkwardness commence. I mean, we just want to stumble through this together. That's all it is. There's no silver bullet here about ending systemic injustice and Columbia around the world. Today, what we're doing is rubbing shoulders with another person in need. If we can do that, we're taking one step towards mercy and justice. The reason we do that, the reason we kind of set ourselves up for this kind of awkwardness, this kind of lumbering through a relationship, is because we trust wholly in step two. We trust that all the while, while we have these relationships, we will continue to listen to God's word. This is Jeremiah's warning to temple goers, right? Verse 8, you're trusting in deceptive words. You're saying this is the temple we are delivered. That's Christian words that can be used in a Christian context, but they don't apply to you because you are not doing those things. You've deceived yourself. Chapter 6, verse 14, God says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Far be it from us to say that there is peace. How do we defend against that? How do we defend against this kind of self-deception and move towards justice and mercy? We become a people who listen to God's word. In Jeremiah chapter 7, In a community that is rife with injustice, it's rife with oppression, it's rife with one cheating another, do you know how God begins his work? He sends the prophet Jeremiah to speak. He sends him to say something. He sends him to use words because God understands that his words, they hold weight. Words can grab a hold of a person and by the Spirit's power, they can turn us upside down. They can change us into something that we're not. A listening community is very closely related to a loving community. 
We throw ourselves in relationships with other people, and then we listen to God speak. I love how the Luke passage ends, the passage of Jesus clearing the temple. He clears it, he sets up shop, he begins preaching and teaching daily. People are coming, principal men and scribes, they're plotting about how to destroy him, but they can't because the text says, all the people were hanging on his words. People were coming to the temple, the new temple, and when they heard Jesus speak, they couldn't get enough of it. They hung on the very words of Jesus. Tell me that will not turn a city upside down. Tell me, get people in rooms with one another, rubbing shoulders, building personal relationships of justice and mercy and listening closely to Jesus. And tell me that that will not turn the city of Columbia upside down. Tell me that that will not transform a church body. We become that kind of people. We build those kinds of relationships. We listen to those kinds of words from the mouth of Jesus. And I promise we will see miracles. Let's pray together. Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what is very close to the heart of God. That you care for those who are overlooked. You care for those who suffer. You care for those who are oppressed. You care for those who are being cheated. You care for those who will not receive a single dinner invitation this week. You care for those who don't know where their next meal is coming from and don't know where they will sleep tonight. And I pray and I plead that as we hang on your words, we would be the kind of church that cares for those people too. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.